Hello, friends. Welcome once again to the Perfect Bound Podcast. This is a podcast all about anything and everything comic books and comics related, brought to you by the Panel Jumper. My name is Ben. With me, as always, is Chris Casso. Hello. Cole Hornaday. Hey there. And joining us all the way from Salem, Massachusetts, he's an artist, a writer, and a letterer, Kurt Ankeny. Thanks for joining us, Kurt. Hey, my pleasure. And uh, Cole, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw the rest of the intro over to you. Tell us who Kurt is. Well, I have to be completely and utterly transparent. Kurt is probably one of my oldest friends. Um, we met when he was an undergraduate, and I was a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin Madison. He was not one of my students. He was a student of my then girlfriend, and she was really really taken with him because he had done a final. Um, I believe Kurt, correct me, but I believe it was a final English project entirely in graphic form. Um, he'd done this very, very uh, detailed analysis on, on some literary theory, and he drew the whole thing. And she brought it home to me and said, you really need to take a look at what this person is doing. It's really extraordinary and really fascinating. And I think you would really enjoy spending time with him. And she was really, really right. <laughs> Do you remember that project? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, actually, I... Um... If had I known you were going to talk about it, I, I found it recently. Um, I can't remember where it was, but I found it recently, so I have it here. Um, it was um, it was Jacques. Uh, I forget his last name, but yeah, the, the professor. The, yeah, his, the English professor uh, allowed me. Excuse me, I have a loud neighborhood. Um, <laughs> he allowed me to uh, do my final paper for his English his English seminar class as a comic. He was just like, "Yeah, that sounds cool." And so I, for some godforsaken reason, I did a 22 page comic start to finish in 10 days. Yeah. Take that Jack Kirby. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) And at that time in, in Kurt's, um, in Kurt's strategy for life, he wanted to be a comic book illustrator, um, predominantly interested in superhero comics. And I had always harbored the dream of, of publishing my own comic book someday. And because I am that person, I threw one of my scripts at him and we hammered it, we kicked it around for a couple of years. And then Kurt said, I don't, I have, I've got to move on with my life and I have to move to Japan with my wife. So then it kind of stopped. <laughs> I did that one short for you though. Yes, you, well, you did a lot of things. I'm not, I don't mean to diminish your contribution um, <laughs> at all. I, I apologize for that. But no, no. I do got I, I have to tell you, pal, I do still have them here. It's <laughs> an envelope right here. I have all kinds of Kurt Anik. There's a there's a little um, art hutch right over here where I have stored lots of your artwork over the years, and um, and I do take it out and 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 fawn over it and and, and touch it delicately. A little shrine, some candles are lit. A little Kurt Anik shrine. Yeah. Anyway, but then um, but then uh, you started to take a greater interest in finer arts. You kind of left the desire to do sci-fi and um, superhero comics behind and and started looking into um, uh, painting and calligraphy and graphic design, correct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, I, this the thing that I think really happened was that I, you know, despite my efforts to like get into superhero comics, um, I think that was the only real path that I was aware of at the time. And it just sort of suddenly dawned on me um, that I didn't want to draw people in spandex for the rest of my life, as much as I love the human figure, but it was, but it was, uh, it, it started to seem silly to me. And so I, um, and so I, I, and I also was, you know, having the sort of classic comic book artist uh, insecurity about my art skills, because there, there was no instruction in that, like, as I was coming up through my, through my education. And so I felt like I needed to go back and reinforce that part of of my education. And so I started taking some classes at the Corcoran College of Art and Design. And then um, and then I also apprenticed with a guy, which is what brought me up to Massachusetts after that. Okay. All right. And and then you started getting into this highly personal um, uh, biographical storytelling. And hence, um, and, and I'm assuming that's where your first book, um, In Pieces, came from. Um, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, actually, it's funny because the, um, so I had been painting for uh, probably about 10 years at that point. And then um, I, 
I started when we when we um, we lost our house in the um, 2008 economic downturn and we had to move to a small apartment. So we moved to that small apartment in a different town nearby. And when we moved there, it was, it's this very strange, a very strange like small New England town where um, it's a tiny place, but nobody wants to know you. Like unless you've been there for 30 years, like they couldn't care less. Um, and so it, um, it just, it was an odd sensation being in the town just in general. And I started painting these things that I would see around town because I didn't know anybody and because nobody really greeted you. Um, I'd walk around town just going back and forth from my apartment to my studio and I'd see these quotidian scenes that didn't really, weren't really special, but when they were put into a painting, they seemed odd or they seemed odd to me at the time. And so I started painting these things from memory. And then um, eventually I realized that uh, that I had several that didn't fit as paintings because they were, you know, more narrative in structure. And so I started making comics out of those. And that's where the in pieces directly grew out of that. It, it, it ended up being a painting series of about 30 paintings. And then in addition to that, all the comics for in pieces. So. And um, uh, Chris, you read in pieces, right? Yes. Yeah. When the, when Kurt brought them over to uh, the comics dungeon great. back in 2016. So, yeah. Yeah. And a um, lifetime ago, uh, <laughs> several lifetimes ago, <laughs> for the halcyon days of 2016. <laughs> so this was originally printed up in 2016, but then it's had how many printings has it had since? Kurt? Oh no, it's only had the one printing. It's just that um, Ad House has um, picked it up for distribution. Oh, okay. which is very helpful. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's still we're still on the original printing. Oh, okay. Gotcha. All right. When I was looking it up again, I kept on seeing a publication date of 2020, and I'm like, "Am I having a seizure?" <laughs> no, yeah, no. It's, it's the one. It's the one print job. But I think uh, I think when Chris put the data in, or when Diamond does it, they just say, "Oh yeah, it came out in 2020 because that's when we first got it." So right. Yeah. <laughs> and, everything, and everything in this book is by hand, and when I say that, I'm emphasizing the lettering as well. So you. Yeah. You um you didn't use any digital fonts in in lettering this this book at all. No 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 not at all. And and there were and there are also a lot of um uh, very experimental tech. I mean it's, it's it's this beautiful biography. It's like I read this and I had the benefit of knowing you as a person already. So I got to and it was it was a great trip for me because I got to catch up on the life I haven't shared with you for decades. Right, right that's why i love this book and so i and i reviewed it on the podcast years ago when it originally came out and and i did read um quotes from it that particularly stuck in my heart but i mean i'm just one guy in the cyclone of the universe that says well this is why i love this book and i don't know if that's going to translate well to other people reading it but i still want you to read it <laughs> um so uh, but yeah, that's that. That's the beauty of this book. Is it still in print? Is it, this one still available? Oh yes, yes indeed, it is still in print. All right, and um, <laughs> and then you went on to start, and then you did a lot of, um, of, of of short pieces that you did on different um, print mediums like newsprint, things like that, right? Yeah, I. Um, so I think the when I came back to comics in 2014, the first couple of things I did were. Um, I had taken uh, Frank Santoro's correspondence course out of Pittsburgh, and uh, I did uh, the story Saltwater Snow. The first half of that was my project for Frank's correspondence course, and then, the, and then I expanded it to a 32-page uh, book, which I put out as a floppy. And then I also um, found a little place here locally in Saugus that um, just printed up like community newspapers, uh -huh. and they and they printed up a version of A-bomb on a tabloid side. So it was a nice big, um, nice big tabloid newsprint piece. So that was quite nice. And, and any folks who are um, uh, uh, Patreon supporters of the Panel Jumper, you all got a copy of A-bomb, um, if you recall, in your, um, in your uh, thank you for your love and support package um, about a year ago. So, and that was thanks to the kindness and courtesy of Kurt Ankin, um, who donated those all to us. So um, anyway, I'm talking a lot, um, which is my want, but um, 
Uh, oh, you're just you're just leading through the 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 history of uh, Mr. Kurt here. Yeah, I, I am, but I'm also very mindful of boundaries right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so Kurt, tell me about when you made this artistic transition. Did you have a revelatory moment where you said, "I am a better"? I am going. My call. Let me rephrase this. My calling is going to be biographical stories or stories of a more speculative dent rather than superheroes. Um, I think. I think what occurred. What happened to me is that um, you know, I, I like I said about the the in pieces sort of grew naturally out of my painting practice. Practice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, after sort of a huge economic hit like that, you know, one gets one gets mopey and, and introspective, of course. And I think a lot of that is in in pieces. I think a lot of it was, you know, me exercising whatever whatever damage had been done from yeah. that sort of a life setback. Um, but also, uh, I think it was not so much me um, realizing that I preferred. Uh, the sort of indie comics over superhero comics, but rather that, like I said, I, you know, back in the nineties or so when I was practicing to be sort of a mainstream artist, I didn't really know of any other path or rather um, the alternative path that I knew of was just so, so deeply alternative that I, I didn't see a place for myself there, mm. you know, in the, in the world of like, underground comics that is you know robert crumb and stuff i didn't i didn't see my my space there but then when i came back to comics after after painting for a while which was you know 2014 um i found that the indie comics area had had matured to the point where i could i saw a place for myself okay. and because um and because the work that i had had started to do in painting was was expanding in its narrative scope it just seemed to make sense to me to go back um and so that's why i that's sort of what drew me back to it because i've always loved comics and i i had even at that point um started a painting series that was going to sort of be you know um uh each painting would be like sort of a panel and the gallery show would be a presentation of this sort of odd story um but I felt like uh, I wanted to just go back to comics because I enjoy it so much. So, what did you learn about self-publishing? What did you? I mean, were the things that you learned the hard way? Um, you know, I can't say that I had any like massive, uh, you know, lessons in the school of hard knocks. I mean, I think just in general, being in indie comics is is a tough road to hoe, of course. Um, and it, it's a, you know, it's, it's one of those games where it's a very slow burn. It's not like you're going to debut as the new Spider-Man, uh, you know, artist and suddenly rocket to superstardom or something is, or even, you know, uh, what was, what was McFarlane's first book, uh, some, some obscure like rocket wrecking and something or not whether actually i think it was scorpio rose from eclipse right chris <laughs> i thought it was coyote but Might let's not make this coyote. Coyote. let's not make this the mcfarland podcast yeah <laughs> yeah but i think at the time that was at the time that was my my hero and so so like um yeah it, it's uh <laughs> <laughs> and oh my god how much how much crap i had to unlearn from that man <laughs> really let's that's, I, I, that's at a, one point I, I at one point i was a pretty good mcfarlane mimic and i had all of his little um idiosyncrasies sort of you know uh embedded in my hand and uh and too many teeth in every person's mouth and everything too many, yeah. yeah too many teeth too many extraneous lines too much mm -hmm. horror, horror vacui um, too much weird rubbery anatomy, you know, yeah, like yeah. just in general, just so. But there was something really interesting and dynamic about his artwork when it came out. And I think that was, you know, what appealed to me. And of course, as a young artist, you don't realize that, you know, the the, the flash on the surface is not necessarily what's attracting you. Right. So, um, but um, I do read myself there a little bit. Where was I? Uh, well, that's, that's okay. We... <laughs> We took a left turn at Albuquerque, but that's what we're all about. And I remember also you being a deeply enamored of uh, uh, Travis Charest, who I thought was more of a fine, who had a more 
a, def, a finer style, but um, but still um, very flashy. Yeah, he was he was very flashy. Um, he was he is definitely like um, I'm going to assume that most of his influences were European in in nature, and I think at that point, like you know, he seemed so fresh to the American audience because there was so little Euro comics in print here in the United States. Um, and uh, and my God, he was inconsistent. He just he couldn't hit a deadline to save his soul. That guy. Yeah. Um, and he's still, you know, knocking around somewhere. I mean, he's, he popped up recently, but like it had been, it felt like 10 years since the last time I saw him. Oh, yeah. So, well, he yeah. probably finished a panel in that time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was a good looking panel, but yeah. It was amazing. <laughs> uh, um, and one, oh, uh, go ahead, Chris. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no. Uh, I, I don't want to uh, completely tangent you somewhere else, but. Uh, um, I had been catching up and going through uh, your short kind of diary comics over on the, the comics journal. Mm. And uh, uh, you did those about last September. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's, I didn't actually realize it had been that long, but uh, I absolutely love those. And uh, I was wondering, first of all, like uh, how did you get that gig? And then B, can we maybe expect to see some more? Um, you know, what the experience was like. Um, yeah, it was, um, uh, you know, I think it was, uh, my, I think it was, uh, Chris Pitzer, the head of ad house publishing, the, mm -hmm. the head and only man of ad house publishing. Um, and I think it was his contacts with TCJ that allowed me to have that space. And we, um, we had timed it so that it would sort of coincide with the week the week before SPX happened, because we knew that, well, I knew that the week of SPX, nobody's going to be paying attention to the TCJ because they're all busy packing up, you know? Right. Um, but uh, so it ran the week before SPX last year. And, um, and yeah, it was, it was, um, it was lovely. I mean, they, um, they just, you know, gave me some very loose guidelines. Um, and luckily we had just been on a little family vacation. So I just sort of mined that from, you know, experiences. And, um, and I have to say it was um, very much in the same vein as the work that I did in, in pieces, but yeah. I, had changed the, um, I was interested in experimenting with that painterly style because I have been sort of interested um, in, in merging the stuff that I know about painting with the stuff that I know about comics and, and, and trying to um, use all of that knowledge at once um mm -hmm. and it's it's a it's a bit of a tough nut to crack because they don't get along very well but um but i'm getting closer, getting closer. Nice. are you painting digitally or are these practical like actual inks or oils on canvas that you somehow take a picture of scan and send in or modify thereafter yeah, yeah. Um, no, everything, I try to do everything right on the paper. So those TCGA comics were, um, you know, they were all done in acrylic wash on, you know, watercolor paper, and I hand lettered over the top of them. Um, so it's, and then I just scan it and adjust the colors, basically. Um, and, uh, and I actually did them really small because I wanted to make sure that they weren't getting shrunk and that they were easily read readable on a phone. So the, the actual originals are maybe only like three inches across. Really? Wow. Cause that's, that's one thing that I, um, when I was a kid growing up, uh, I was never, I never had the aspirations to be, uh, a cartoonist or an artist, uh, a, a visual artist, but I was very interested in how it was done. And I learned that, uh, artists like Gary Larson on the far side, where their canvas was actually rather big and it got shrunk down considerably when it was printed. And so it's just a, the way you have to think about the relationships, like text size and that kind of thing, just adds another element of like, I hope I'm doing this right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, I have, I have often tried to, I think, only maybe one or two of my recent stories have been done at a size that I knew was going to be significantly bigger than what they would print at. And there's a couple that I've done recently that were actually um, 
printed bigger than the original art. Um, a bomb was printed bigger than the original art, and so was Dark Desert Dawn. Um, I I have been interested in experimenting with the fact that like when you draw it at the size that it's being printed at, um, it just seems more lively. You know, mm. when it, when it gets the reason that like the reason that the artists in the past would draw big and then shrink it down is because you get this nice professional finish when everything's shrunk. And you get a little, the little bit of the human jitter in the lines and stuff comes out when you shrink it down. And uh, I'm kind of interested in that jitter being there still. And so I often will um, create the piece at the size it's going to be printed. Cool. So, um, you kind of became your own one man show with regards to um, distributing their work, your work and also attending a lot of um, uh, festivals like Short Run, traveling around, kind of being a bit of a vagabond and selling your wares at tables. And that was a, a, a that was a new facet I had never seen in you before um, to be at these little comic book festivals like Short Run here in Seattle and, and, um, and, and, and wrangling the crowds and selling your wares. How was that? Because that's, an, that's not an experience, I don't think the, you know, that's an experience that an extrovert would embrace. And I've never seen you, that side of you before, but you did a darn good job of hawking your wares there. How was that? <laughs> I don't know, actually the figures at the end of the day, I don't think would agree with you, but. Um, uh. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's because I was right next to a guy who was selling um, these, uh, screen prints with neon inks that were a uh, mashup of Korean anime and cat photos. And oh, so geez. those were selling like flaming oh, hotcakes. And right. <laughs> everybody else was ignoring me completely. You can't be cats. So, so, but uh, it's, um, I, I feel like it's just sort of part of the indie scene these days. Like you, you know, one of the things that's so lovely about indie comics in this day and age is that it, I mean, th there is no gate uh, really. I mean, you make a comic, you show up and if people like it, you know, or the comics community will accept you regardless, but there's your audience, like just go ask them to read your book basically. Sure. Um, and so, uh, so that is rather lovely. Um, but yeah, it is, it is, I've always been sort of like, I'm one of those people that like, I can fake it pretty good for the extrovert stuff. And I'm, you know, I, I like people just not in huge doses, you know, <laughs> in, 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 in torrents. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I mean, and, and that's that's what you get at these comic shows is yeah. just torrents of people. And it's funny to watch cartoonists because we just sit there and our our minds just goggle at the at the not you know, it's just it's just this is you know, it's it's hilarious because it's a it's a giant convention of introverts and we just don't know how to handle ourselves. <laughs> I guess that was that was what the question you just answered one of my questions was how did you navigate all that? That's that's gotta be um, a really mind-blowing process of discovery is like, oh, I've got to be my own salesperson, which leads me to a question I had um, for Chris when it came to selling independent works like Chris's, how were you advised, because I know a lot of people would walk into your store and, and, and give you a little bit of a pitch. What were you usually looking for and what did you, how did you advise those independent creators to better distribute and sell their work? Mm. Um, it just really kind of, kind of depended. We, we saw so many different styles and, and everything. And, um, I mean, one of the key things we'd always definitely mention to people is, uh, trying to, uh, make things a little bit easier for retailers, get that barcode on there if you can, you know, stuff <laughs> like that. Um, so there's like the little, the little logistics, the little basics, um, we also would try to aim people towards, uh, we have a local distributor, um, Emerald Comics Distro, um, headed by Ann Bean. And she is amazing and she can, she can get your books out to all the right bookstores. So we try to make those connections as much as possible. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it just, just kind of depended because we, we would have so many people have very finished, very, very complete, ready to go works. Uh, when Kurt brought his book in, it's just like, perfect love it it's good you know but then we get some that were you know 
don't want to be mean, but weren't quite finished um, by any means. And it's just kind of when when you're looking at the entire display of of what we had to put out there, people will ignore certain things if they're just not, you know, if the work didn't seem to be put into them. Are you telling me that people judge books by their covers? Yeah. Oh hey. no, you did not go there. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's very very case by case. But uh, I, I will say when when Cole introduced your book, Gert, it was. It was just kind of like this is perfect. It's ready to go. You know, we can we can fe- we can feature this in so many places. We can either put it in like the the uh, you know we have a few different indie sections. We could put it in some of the local display sections, but uh, also it's yeah it's it was just wow chef's kiss it, it was it was you would have just been completely tongue-tied had i handed you 120 pages of amateurish bullcrap right like, <laughs> just, like what do i say this man you know wasted seven thousand dollars printing this garbage up uh, <laughs> it's one of those things where i always want to try I'll, I'll i i tried to pick up everything that people would bring and, and just get a couple copies to to support and then see if there was anybody would pick it up. But a lot of the things that were definitely just like very beginner level, nobody ever picked up. Um, and it's disheartening to see, but it's also just the nature of it. There's too much, too, too many books fighting for, for space. And most stores don't have yeah. the square footage, you know? So. Ben, ben, it's funny that you say like, do people judge books by their cover? One of the things, just as a consumer, that I find infuriating is if you get drawn in by a great cover and you open it up and the inside is a complete and total mismatch. It just there's nothing that makes me want to chuck a book across the room as much as that. It's it's the literary equivalent of like uh, clickbait thumbnails on YouTube. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But that's been the nature of comics for. I mean, Dell Comics. They have these exquisite. Charlton had these exquisite painted covers and you open it up and the artwork was blah. But man, that Turok cover, I mean, this is not Turok, that Turok cover with a dinosaur or Magnus punching that robot, you know, it was... Yeah, I mean, the same could be said for Atari games from the mid-80s, you know, the, the cover, the box art made them, made them look awesome. And then it was just this, you know, 8-bit art. Um, Kurt, when we were, when we, uh, scheduled this interview, you were, you were kind enough to send me a box of your books, Yeah, which, um, fortunately got here before, uh, our interview today. I think I had about two and a half hours to read. And, um, but so I did read pleading with the stars, which I want to talk about, but first off yeah. you included this, um, monoculture, which is, would you call this a zine or is it a pamphlet? What would you call, uh, this? Yeah, it's a zine. It's a zine. Yeah, Great. sure. From uh, from Two Hundred Zoo Press, I get the feeling that you hang out in coffee shops a lot. Um, because I have done, yes, I yeah, have. Done. This book is this book is basically uh, portraits of other uh, coffee or tea drinkers sitting around you. Some of them are like a very interesting, like a realism style, and uh, some other ones go into more like a a line drawing sort of abstract. It's all very interesting. There's no word, so I was able to flip through it very quickly. But I do want to um, ask you two questions about it. One, when you uh, were you ever caught drawing somebody in a coffee shop? Um, yeah, I have been. Uh, I have been definitely like, you know, you're like looking at somebody, and you're drawing them, and suddenly they like look up and stare at you, and you lock eyes, and. Um, and but I have that doesn't happen as much as you think because I usually choose somebody that actually can't look at me like they're either facing away or they're facing right. enough away that they won't notice. Um, and usually, if that does happen, they look uncomfortable enough that I just stop. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so I stop and I turn the page and I start drawing. Something <laughs> else. They they go back to their meal because I'm not there to bother people and I'm not there to be a creep. But it is an incredibly good resource for just keeping your skills up you know absolutely mm-hmm. uh speaking of keeping your skills up so on page 14 which is actually right at the at the um staple point of this book yeah. 
Um, there's there's a, a drawing like a um, like a, a woman wearing a striped shirt. There's a two women sitting on a bench and a, a, a like a figure of a man's face. And then I'm gonna show this on my camera in case uh, anybody listening wants to see this on YouTube. You drew Charlie Brown. Why is Charlie Brown in uh, this picture? Take it, take it back a little bit so that I can see it. Uh, oh, yeah. So there's um, Charlie Brown right there. So I believe, if I'm not mistaken, and it's too blurry for me to see on this feed, but I yeah. believe, if you notice, the little marks that usually make up Charlie Brown's face are actually reversed on there. And it just sort of occurred to me that like I could reverse those marks and it would still look like Charlie Brown. So. <laughs> yeah, I just thought it was interesting—an interesting, an interesting um, inclusion in all these um, uh, 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 pictures of, of actual what appear to be actual people in actual situations. But yeah, cool. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thanks for sending in this. And we mentioned a couple of uh, stories from your book, "Pleading with Stars," um, a bomb being one of them. Another is, um, uh, forgive me if I, I'm flipping through the book now, I'm trying to come up with the, ti uh, the title, and the title is uh, Dark Desert Dawn. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. A couple of, like, uh, Dark Desert Dawn especially is a very bleak uh, uh, tale. A-bomb, sorry, you can find some, you can find some, some hope in, in A-bomb, but, um, but all, a lot of these also feel like, jumping off points to larger tales were these were these always meant to be like self-contained stories or were you start these with the in, uh with the expectation that they were going to become something bigger and you just had to stop or found an ending that you liked or what was what's what what is behind a lot of these uh stories in this book um you know i think uh, i think most of them are intended to be short stories i think they were written that way and they and um, I'm glad you feel like they were the start of something because that means that I'm, you know, <laughs> doing my world building and, and writing fairly well. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I have sort of been knocking about in my head is that I really envy the um, the economy with which uh, songwriters write um, and the way that they're able to express, like, you know, a whole world. You know, you take any of, like, Paul Simon's songs or, or a John Prine song or something. And the amount of like story and, and whatnot, they're able to cram into those, you know, three or four minutes. Um, you know, that's, that's fascinating to me as a, as a narrative writer. And I also feel like it's, it's very much part of comics DNA because we spent so much time um, either as a very short story, you know, in the comics panels or, um, when they finally became floppy magazines, you know, the eight to 16 page story was just your standard thing. Um, and the, the graphic novel is, the graphic novel is, is great. Um, one of the mistakes that I think a lot of modern comics does is that it follows along with the um, cinematic language rather than mining some of these other things that I think are better models for comics like poetry and like songwriting. Hmm. And while, and while there's, um, while there's, you know, of course a place for the sort of cinematic comic, um, I, ju I just feel like it's, it's more interesting to come at it from a different angle. Well, I, I love um, pleading with stars. I, um, you know, obviously I, 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 I was very, very fond of in pieces, but when I picked up pleading with stars, what did strike me was that the economy, the internal economy with which he told all of these stories, they were succinct. And yeah, there was poetic ambiguity frequently. There was, um, uh, you know, you were left with your own devices to sort of like um, unpack what the story was ultimately about. Um, but it was, um, it was, it was not, it was, there was a clarity to it. And I really felt like when I read this this collection, though I'd read some of the stories before, I was like, this storyteller has come into his own and he's found his voice and he's found his style, his narrative style. And this is going to be the best example, the, most, the earliest example of what he can accomplish going forward. So I just love this collection so much. Thank you. Um, yeah. And that's a recommendation that y'all should go buy. 
<laughs> yes. It's also like we talked about how you, you you're very, you know, pencil on paper kind of thing. And uh, all the letters are hand letters. And uh, I, it wasn't going to happen. But I felt that as I was touching the pages, I was going to smudge the pencil because yeah, it, it, it exactly. has that feel to it. There are even some moments where you can tell where you sharpened the pencil, like mid-sentence, and which is an interesting detail that you don't see at all in comics. <laughs> Well, I think, you know, the other thing is that like um, uh, one of the, one, another, another sort of like, I don't want to call it a crutch, but one of the other things that I kind of like wish to destroy in comics is this um, obsessive with, uh, obsession with, uh, with sort of high, high degree of finish. You know, we've got like Charles Burns and Chris Ware on one end of the spectrum. And I'm, you know, I, I love that and it's lovely and the skills are amazing. But I feel like there's so much more um, to mine from sort of artists' sketches and the quick take and the um, and oftentimes I will do a comic um, straight to finish um, because I want that energy of the first take in in the final work and so like um, like Dark Desert Dawn. Uh, that was done basically straight to finish right in my sketchbook. And it was done two pages per, per page. And then I think at the, I think the first couple of pages I had to go back and do a slightly more finished version because they were just completely illegible. But um, that one, and also the, um, the colored pencil piece in, in uh, Pleading with Stars called uh, Between December and March that was also um, in the now anthology, um, that was also a, a straight to finish. So I'm basically just writing it and drawing it as I go. And then that's it, you know, um, because I want that sort of, uh, I want that sort of looseness. I want that sort of freshness. And as an artist, I often feel that I, I, I tense up when I tr to do too many takes and I don't want that. Um, I don't want that. There, there are some panels in Dark Desert Dawn where just the negative space, like, uh, is just fills most of the panel, except for maybe uh, uh, an, uh, uh, just a slight figure somewhere or text. I can't imagine how many blue pens or pencils you went through drawing that. Was it on no, blue paper or was it blue uh, pens? No, it's literally straight to finish. Like I was just going straight in with inks. So oftentimes what I would do with that, um, so here you can see, this is- Oh my, wow. Yeah. Just right there in the, so I'm not, um, so for these these pages, I was often just um, uh, dry brushing over the panel with like a very light gray tone and then filling okay. it in carefully. Um, yeah, it, 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 it was, I wasn't actually drawing underneath. I was just going straight, like I said, just straight to finish. Mm. Without a net. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then you you found yourself being a professional um, a hand letterer. How did that happen? Uh, completely randomly. So, uh, so after, so a little, I'll, I'll try and make this quick. So after I did, um, after I did the correspondence course, Frank wanted to run an Indiegogo. Frank Santoro wanted to run an Indiegogo to expand his uh, correspondence course. And uh, over the course of that, he asked me to do a version of his course in book form. Mm -hmm. So it was basically my take on his course, and then he edited it for clarity or, or whatever. Um, and that was called the Santoro School uh, Guide to Making Better Comics. I don't know if you guys have a copy of that there or not, but... Um, and in that, I basically drew all the diagrams and I hand lettered the whole thing and, and did that. And, um, Matt Fraction and Frank are friends and Matt had actually contacted Frank to do the coloring, um, at first and it didn't work out for one reason or another. Um, but he had seen my work on that, uh, Santoro school's handbook and he likes hand lettering of uh, math fraction does. And so he was, he said, Oh, maybe he had, he had seen my work and he was like, Oh, I'd really like to work with him. And then he saw my lettering and he's like, Oh, maybe he could do the lettering for this new book that we're doing. So just um, to double back, we're talking about um, Matt fraction and Elsa. Um, is it Chartier? Chartier. Yeah. Yeah. Chartier's um, uh, sure. November, which is a four part hardbound um, uh, series from image um, number two just came out number three is number like, three is out next week on the 21st 
Okay. Yeah. All right. For this week, actually. And uh, and and uh, Matt Hollingsworth did um, the colors. Yeah, Matt Hollingsworth did the colors. Um, Ryan Hughes did the design. I mean, it's a killer's row, a murderer's row of, of talent here. And then, uh, then you have Kurt. Uh, and you have me like puttering along in the back. <laughs> um, but you're credited on the cover, and so like we, you know, we we lost, we 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 passed the era of of of, of letters. Well, you know what? Letters have never been given their due ever in the comic. No, true. Um, and. You know, not a lot of people paid much attention when there's, uh, you know, Adobe took over how we did graphic design and and fonts were, you know, there were there were a couple of of comic book letters. Chris, do you remember that the back in the '90s there were a number of comic book letters who like uh, who who digitized their styles? Do you remember? Yeah, Stark Starkings. Yes. Yeah, Richard yeah. Stark. Richard Starks. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. And um. But a friend of mine made a font based on his handwriting too that he's he mm -hmm. lets people download. And so that and, and I don't think a lot of people, unless you were deeply involved in the art form or were a creator, really paid attention that we went from people sweating, letters sweating over um, hand lettering something to uh, the digital. I just and then so um, it's a it's a big deal uh, to me and probably to a lot of artists. That you are actually on the cover, you you are credited on the cover as the. I mean, it doesn't say letter, but your name is there. Uh, dude, yeah. all I really care about is you got your name on this. <laughs> <laughs> it was very very kind of 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 Matt and Elsa to um, you know really highlight uh, the work that uh, Matt Hollingsworth and I were doing on the book. Um, you know, of course, Matt Hollingsworth is you know probably my age, but he's been a veteran for. I mean, good God, he colored preacher for God's sake. Um, <laughs> you know, so, um, uh, yeah, it was very kind of them. And I, I think you're right. I, I think nobody really noticed, um, when we switched from, you know, sort of hand lettering to, um, to digital. And I also feel like perhaps it was because especially mainstream comics lettering, lettering was seen you know, it has its moments for like uh, sound effects and stuff, but for dialogue, it was basically just seen as functional, right? It's, right. it's, it's there to convey the words and and maybe do a little bold emphasis or whatever, and that's about it. Be clear and, and get out of the way. Um, and I feel like, at least the way I approach lettering, um, there's a there's a layer of nuance and of acting and sort of of character development that you can add in lettering if you're doing it by hand that it would be very very difficult to do um, digitally, yeah. Or at least with a, digital, with a digital font. I mean, you could do it with a stylus, I suppose, on a, on a digital a digital tablet. Um, but I think there's a whole world of of stuff there to play around with, and I think that especially mainstream comics just ignored that that mechanism of, of the comics language. Um, and so I'm hoping to sort of, you know, bring that to people's attention if I can. Do you think this is a, a craft that, you know, will, will come back into its own kind of vogue, um, sort of as a retro thing because, hey, vinyl came back and... <laughs> I mean, I think the economics of comics would make it difficult for it to come back in any serious way because people are just used to paying like five to fifteen dollars sure. for for lettering. Yeah. Um, people are just and you know it's done. But um, but and, and 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 you know like it's not gone in indie comics. Like indie comics, like most most indie comics are hand lettered, um, and. And yet, even in indie comics, I don't think that it's appreciated for the sort of narrative vehicle that it can be, um, or at least not consciously. And so, um, yeah, I try to I try to be careful. I try to actually like um, do as much as I can in that little that little. Way. So I, I do follow you on Instagram, and you had posted images of your workflow, your workflow charts and graphs. So, and I was looking at your process, your, your workflow flow for your pages and your panels and how you'd broken down your process on a daily basis. So, um, and what I realized is that this is an entirely different workflow process 
that he's adopting or at least mastering versus illustrating pages. Can you can you speak to that? The challenges that you you had to discover while you were doing that. Um, yeah. So like um, part of my, I mean, most of what I uh, was figuring out when I was doing the lettering for November was just basically, okay, I've got this nice page of letters on a piece of paper. So now how do I get it into the digital space? Not that I don't know how to scan, but I want it, you know, it was, um, there were some little technical things that I needed to um, get up to speed on and that some of the uh, production people at Image helped to, um, and I think, you know, I think Matt and Matt Hollingsworth and Ryan Hughes also um, pitched in to sort of uh, give me some tips on how to make things go faster. But it's basically just, you know, I take the, the, the paper and I scan it and then I, you know, uh, in Photoshop, I, I prep that line work so that it can um, lay over the top. And then I, and then I composite it in InDesign because um, no matter how well I do it on the light box, there's always adjustments that need to be made once it's in the digital space. And so I, I have a whole separate like sort of flow where I go in and I place each, the, all of the letter you know, balloons and make sure they're lining up with the panel borders and stuff properly. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's, um, the actual lettering that I do is much faster than the digital process afterwards. The digital process probably takes, you know, a good half of a week and I can, and I can do a book in probably two days just by huh. hand, you know? So. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> Quick question, uh, Kurt. Um, yeah. I noticed that you recently did a uh, hand lettering workshop uh, so for a Month oh, yeah. of Mice. Yeah, um, have you been uh, doing workshops for a bit now or something you're just starting to get into? Or um, You know, the only people that have ever asked me to do a workshop are the lovely folks at Mice, and that's because I know quite a few of them. The, the, um, one of the co-creators, Shelly Perline, is, um, lives here in Salem with her husband Braden, um, they're both stunning cartoonists and they've worked on everything from Adventure Time to um, coloring all of the Raina Telgemeier books. So, oh, cool. uh, you know, they're, they're, they're like these unknown heavy hitters. Like they're, <laughs> you know, they've done so much cool work and yet like if you say their names, like a lot of people wouldn't even know who they were, gotcha. um, which is a shame, but, um, but they're quiet folks. So, you know, it's, I guess it suits them. Right. Um, but yeah, they're the only ones that have really asked me. So I have done um, workshops for mice over the past couple of years, but uh, I haven't done anything at any other shows. Oh, maybe I did one at CXC last year or the year before. Oh, what I did was I moderated a panel with Frank, um, Frank Santoro's book and Kevin Heisinger's book um, came out that, that last year. And, um, and so I moderated a panel with them Nice. Uh, which was interesting because the two of them are such different cartoonists, um, but it was fun and, and they're, they're good guys. So, What type of creators are you seeing um, uh, taking these workshops with you? Uh, well, this last one uh, for mice, I mean, you know, we can't really see who's there, but the, the mice people had sort of like back end information and uh, and they also sort of pitched it as a as an intermediate to advanced course because okay. you know, I wanted to talk about some more nuanced stuff, and so um, I think they were pitching it towards college students, so like high school college students, and we got quite a few of those, and I think we got quite a few like you know people past that age as well. So it was interesting to see. Nice, seemed well accepted, cool. well, well received. <laughs> Well, as we uh, as we come near the end of our conversation today, um, Kurt, do you have anything coming up? Uh, I heard that November was a four part series, so part volume three. When does November November volume three come out? So volume three comes out on the twenty first, which is this Wednesday, I believe. Um, and we just actually, I have to upload, I have to start uploading the uh, final files for November four tonight, um, and that will be out in February of twenty twenty one. Okay. Um, and then it's uh, now that I've sort of wrapped up uh, many, many little freelance jobs, I am going to get back to the grindstone and do some painting and try and come up with a new book. So to be to be determined as to when that will come out. But I'll keep you guys posted. All right. Please. Any other questions from either Cole or Chris here? 
I just wanted to, I, I did want to pick up something I've had sitting on the floor here and I've been scooting the cat away from it. Um, <laughs> it's the cat. He's talking about the cat. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, uh, so here is an illustration that Kurt did for me a number of years ago, probably 10 years ago. Um, I wrote a, a, a poem uh, inspired by the Fortean times and all the weird stuff in Fortean times. And he, and I said, can you draw me a picture to go with this? Cause I plan to publish the poem with, Kurt's artwork and you know guess who never followed through on that anyway but it's like you, you can see that there's like a lake monster and a gray alien and a very a very lean and athletic looking uh sasquatch there and then of course the black helicopters mm -hmm. you know, unmarked black helicopter yes yes uh, yeah exactly I really need to uh you know, this is from 2005 so, um yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, that's like 15 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, so I, I need to share that. I won't haul out all of your old artwork that I've had for 30 years. <laughs> Just remember. <laughs> yeah, we won't do that. All right. So, uh, Kurt, if people want to f find out more about you, do you have a website? Do you have, uh, we mentioned an Instagram. How should people uh, co uh, connect with you? Uh, yeah, I do. I'm very easy to find on the internet. I am Kurt Ankeny, A-N-K-E-N-Y, and Kurt with a K, um, everywhere, Instagram, Twitter, and my website is KurtAnkeny.com. You know, it makes you easier to find folks if you're using your name. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> it's true. All right. Well, thank you so much, so Kurt, for, uh... for the day. Exactly. Pro tip for the day. I think he may have frozen again, but this is a good time to tell you that the Pokemon podcast is brought to you by the Panel Jumper. See everything Cole Hornaday and I do at thepaneljumper.com. And uh, send us an email, Podcast at gmail.com. And uh, subscribe to us on iTunes or however you get your podcasts at perfectboundpodcast.com. Kurt, Let's once again. people uh, to where they can find um, uh, Chris as well. Oh, and to um, find everything that Chris Casso is doing, uh, trustyhenchman.com. Trusty henchman, not henchmen. Yeah. Single henchman. All right. Singular. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you once again, Kurt, for joining us, and we will see you next time. My brother.